All right, all right. Welcome back to Take Five with the Boss. It's going to be a special day. I got a really good friend of mine and an intellectual, I like to call him. His name is Jeremy Gilmore. He's something. He's an author, a world traveler, and uh, he's been a consultant for engineering for 25 years on environmental energy and mining. And he's a very interesting guy. I call him the Rutherford's most uh, interesting man. So (laughs) this is going to be a good day. He's going to be talking to us about his favorite books and must-reads and just a little bit of everything on an intellectual level. So without further ado, are you there, Jeremy? I Welcome. am here, Rob. <laughs> great to see you. Thank you so much for having me. And great to have you. Well, I have to give, uh, I have to give your audience a quick intro here because uh, I moved to Fredericton in 2016 uh, after living in uh, Lima, Peru for uh, about a decade and a half. So it's, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. And six years later, we're still here talking. We're still here. And, and uh, now we get to share some of those talks with, uh, with all your people. Yeah, with the world. This I'm excited good. to hear. And I'm just going to sit back and let you talk and let, that, let you go. <laughs> well, I was in here uh, a couple of weeks ago getting a, getting a shave. And uh, you mentioned, you started talking to me about your podcast. And you asked if I could come in. And have a chat. And uh, I said, well, you know, what should we, what should we talk about, Rob? There's a lot. And he said, you said to me, well, I think books, man. I think uh, you seem to be really into that. And I think we should, we should bring that to the table. Yep. And so uh, I, I kicked up some dust and did a little bit of work and uh, I brought some books in. He did, and a stacker of books. <laughs> looks real cool. And I have, uh, I have all kinds of stuff to talk about today. But um, for, me, for me, books are really central to my life and honestly to my growth. Um, I write. I write fiction, nonfiction, uh, all kinds of different stuff. And um, you know, I've been really lucky, won a couple of small things, and uh, I'm sort of hopefully on my way to getting some, some books out there that people can go buy and read. So that's, that's exciting. But, um, but the books I've read... My whole life coming up and the books I read now and the books I'm searching out to read, they really shaped how I see the world and how I interact with the world around me and my understanding of it and my empathy of others and uh, all of those things. I think they're really important. So I brought a list of uh, a whole whack of books today that I would love to talk to your audience about. And I think um, all of the books on this list I framed in such a way that I think these are wonderful inroads to things that maybe people haven't been exposed to or aware of. And all of these books are beautiful works of art. They're all things that, even if you're not into the subject matter, they're so well-written and they're so beautifully put together, you could enjoy them just reading them line by line. That's amazing. So there's there's a lot going on there. So I'll start with a list of fiction. <clears throat> and I've got sort of authors in different, very different kinds of books from all kinds of places. But I'll, I'll start with a big novel from the U.S. And uh, it's by a fantastic author who's no longer with us. His name is Dennis Johnson. And uh, the book I'm talking about is Tree of Smoke. And Tree of Smoke is a novel uh, that takes place in Southeast Asia in the 60s and 70s. And it, it gets into a whole lot of things. It gets into uh, a young man who ends up working for the CIA and you know, the, the beginning of the Vietnam War and all the political intrigues that go with that. So it's, it's super interesting subject matter, but Dennis Johnson's ability to manage words and to create characters is really, he's famous in American letters. He's, he's absolutely amazing. And he, um, he's written a couple of books that were sort of really important to my, my early education in literature. And one of them is a collection of short stories called Jesus' Son. And that book was a door knocker. It, it knocked down doors and it made him, it, he, he blew up after that book. And it's this crazy book about drug addicts and, you know, hitchhikers and all kinds of these crazy people and how their lives intersect. But it's really interesting. Wow. But Tree of Smoke, I think, is maybe the one to start with. It's a big, fat novel, but um, <clears throat> I think people will really be able to dig, dig their teeth into it. And I think it's a great, it's a great intro, intro to the sort of larger world of American fiction, especially of a time sort of American fiction coming out of the 80s and 90s and 2000s. And there's a whole body of work there that is just really, really worth your time. It was definitely an interesting time, for sure. Yeah, so, so Dennis Johnson is a guy you want to check out. The next book is really close to my heart and very special to me, and uh, it's a young Irish author named Colin Barrett. And it's a collection of short stories, and it's called Young Skins. And uh, I'll say this without, you know, any any resistance at all. Um, Colin Barrett is the most important short story writer of the last 30 years. 
Um, he's, I think he's in his early 30s right now. And uh, his, the way he manages language and the way he uses languages is absolutely magic and nobody else is doing it. Um, all of his stories take place in a small fictional town in, in Ireland. And, you know, he writes about bouncers and drug dealers and car thieves and, you know, young single moms and all, all these different people and their, their struggles with day-to-day life. But it's the way he writes his characters and the way he writes dialogue and how the beautiful Irish language just sort of spills out over into everything. And there isn't a page that Colin Barrett has written that isn't dazzling. And I could open up his book, flip it open to any page and find just some random line or piece of dialogue that just makes you stop and think for 10 minutes. And he's really, it grabs you. It grabs you. And it, 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 it's, Bins you around till you're dizzy. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it's one of those stories, or it's one of those books where people I talk to who have read it, um, they'll finish the story and they'll go right back and read it again before going on to the next one because they want to experience that spin. That's what and I want. It's, man, it's, it's incredible. I will leave a copy of him here with you and you can give him a try. Okay. But it, like, it sort of opens up the idea that, yes, these people are speaking English, but like all languages, there's so many different versions of what English is and how it's used. And, you know, you go to anywhere in the world, it's different, right? Like, people think they don't have an accent, but we all have an accent. <laughs> you do, I everybody do. Does. Everybody For does. For sure, yeah. And, you know, as a young man, I lived in Nigeria uh, for quite a while. And, really? Uh, yeah, I lived in Lagos. Tell we, us a little bit about that. We, I, I was born in Canada. My dad's from Northern Ireland, and my mom was born in Canada, but her family's from Norway. And I was born in St. John. And when I was six months old, we moved to Nigeria because my dad got a job there with an engineering company. And uh, we lived there till I was about five. And uh, it was uh, it was an experience. And my first memories um, are of Lagos and Jebba, you know, and Kano in the north of Nigeria. And I had a, I had a Tuareg bodyguard. I had a Tuareg tribesman that my, my parents hired really? as a bodyguard. Because it was a dangerous time. It was kind of right at the end of the it Biafran. It does sound a little dangerous for sure. It, it was right at the end of the Biafran war. Right. And there was a lot happening. Right. And, uh, and we were moving around the country. So I had this, you know, my first memories are of my parents and Chin Chin, this, this guy. And, you know, he took care of me for years. He carried me on his shoulders. He lived with us. Like, he was, he was a serious dude. And, uh, but people in Nigeria technically speak English. It's an English-speaking country. It's a former, really? it's no, a former British colony. Now, there's a bunch of other languages. People speak okay. Yoruba and Igbo, House Fulani. They speak Takish, they speak Arabic. You know, there's it's a massive country with a huge population. I think it's 160 million people. Really? And it's 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 a it's not a huge country geographically, but it's a huge country um, population wise. And it's a big oil exporter and all these other things. And I've been there to work as an adult, and uh, it's it's a wild place. But it is also really culturally rich, and I'll, I'll get into it a little bit later. But um, it's a place where a hell of a lot of wonderful writers are coming out of right now. Really, and I, I can I say, really wouldn't think that. I think the best. Something. I think the best fiction being written today is from young Nigerian authors, and we'll talk about that in a couple books. Okay, but um, but yeah, so my exposure to English was really mixed as a kid because, like, the English they speak in Nigeria is very different, and it's very, uh, it's very influenced by the other languages and by the culture. And you know, you could see I've got Facebook friends who I don't exactly understand what they've just said on Facebook, but they're speaking English. <laughs> and so I'll, I'll, I'll show you some time. I have a few of those friends too. There you go. But, and it's the same, like, you know, my family in Northern Ireland, friends of mine who are South African, you know, these are all, they're all wildly different versions of the same thing. So, so in reading Colin's book, you really, you get a taste of that. And it's, it's so interesting and it's so compelling. And his stories are brilliant and sort of focused and really get inside these people's lives. Uh, is the, the main story in, Young Skins is called Calm with Horses. And it's about a, a former boxer who suffered a brain injury as a young man boxing in Ireland. And now he's a bouncer. His job is he's a bouncer in front of a nightclub. But he has a, he has a young son with his ex-girlfriend and his son is autistic. And the only thing that helps his son is this really expensive therapy with horses. Oh. And so he spends all his money supporting his ex-girlfriend and getting his son the, the treatment that he needs to help him kind of make his way in the world. And it is a... Man, it's a Greek tragedy. Like, it's just watching the decisions the characters make and watching the world fall apart around them is, it's really, it's good. Yeah. It's compelling stuff. Okay. So, yeah, so that's Colin Barrett, and the book is Young Skins. So, the next book, you know, we were just talking about Nigeria and these brilliant writers coming out of Nigeria. Uh, there's a, there's a, a woman, 
and she's from Lagos. She's actually Igbo, but I think she lived in Lagos um, where her parents taught at university. And her name is Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. And she is probably the most important public intellectual out there doing it today. Um, she has written a bunch of novels, um, really wonderful novels. She's written a bunch of nonfiction. Uh, her novels are um, Half a Yellow Sun, Purple Hibiscus, which were hugely well-received. And she writes, uh, her first books were kind of about the, the, the Biafran War in Nigeria, and her following books were more about uh, the, ni- the Nigerian experience abroad, you know, people of Nigerian descent living in the U.S. and the U.K. And she now lives in New York. And uh, she's, she gives amazing talks. She's uh, spoken at uh, Harvard, Stanford. She's spoken at a- every major university in the world. Really? And uh, she is one of the most sought-after speakers and public intellectuals going. And she wrote a short nonfiction piece called uh, Everyone Should Be a Feminist. And it's, uh, it's a tremendous work. And I think, I think it's even required reading in a lot of programs, but it should be required reading for like every high school student. <laughs> Tell us America. a little bit about that. That sounds interesting. It's, it, it, it looks at the, the political and historical implications of feminism and what it means in modern society and where it's succeeding and where it's failing and why feminism, why feminism, feminism isn't uh, in any way a strictly um, female or a, it doesn't only affect women in society. Yet. Okay. A strong feminist society is one in which everyone benefits from that okay. your kids your grandparents it, it makes society stronger and better and she, she she sort of goes through step by step the reasons for that and it's it's a tremendous work and it's insightful it's funny it's terrifying it's sad it's it's all of those things but her her ability um her ability with language and this is a common thread with everybody i've selected today because it's one of the things that i really take seriously in my reading and in my life her ability with language is just unbelievable and her, her her way of conveying ideas and arguments is great and she's if you've ever if you ever get a chance to see her in a debate like on youtube she is just cutthroat <laughs> she will okay. she will lay waste to, <laughs> really? she's, she's polite and she's professional but if you try to go at her you know i've seen i've seen lesser lesser souls take their shot and boy they they bleed out early <laughs> she, oh my goodness. she is she is just too smart and too brilliant and uh too fierce and to to take any shit and it's it's tremendous she, yeah. she she's she's a force of nature oh that's something and and really when you see her speak um you know you're hearing it from the source you know you're she sounds real you she sounds it. real you know you're listening to the person you should be listening to at that moment. That's good. And again, her name is Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. And the collection um, I, I selected was That Thing Around Your Neck, which is a short story collection. I, I'm really big on short stories. I write them. Uh, I publish them. I review them. Um, I judge them. I, I was just um, head of a jury for a, a fiction storytelling contest here locally. And um, I, I take short stories really seriously. The things that you have to achieve uh, in a small window it, it means that your writing has to be very on on point and very mm-hmm. sharp. You have to make tough decisions, and constructing a good short story is it's a high wire act. Did and you did you find any uh, interesting local uh, talent here? Oh, I do, and I've got them. I've got them included here. There's oh, some we okay. we you and I. You know, we're in Fredericton, New Brunswick, and this is a small town. This is a town of I think it's seventy two thousand people, Something all like in that. and growing and growing, and we have. Um, we have a well of artists, writers, musicians, playwrights, um, plastic artists, you know, painters and sculptors. Uh, we have a we have a well of those characters in this town that is just. We need know, to put together like a poetry night or a speaking night or a talk night, something like absolutely. that. Absolutely, that would just be, to bring the talent I could, here. I, I could have that set up for you next week. Oh, <laughs> there, man. there are so Let's many. It, man. There are so many people who are chomping at the bit to share their work. Yeah. But uh, but no, I have I have a, a a local fellow who's a good friend of mine and is actually um, a huge writer in Canadian letters and and he's he's perhaps not a household name but a writer every writer I know knows who he is really <laughs> and That's good. Uh, but he's very good but I'll, I'll talk talk about him in a few minutes okay but um, but yeah Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie and the book I selected was that thing around your neck which is her short story collection but you could go to the library or the bookstore and get all of her books and you would you would come away with something from each thing she's written and then you go online and she's you know written extensively for the new yorker or the atlantic 
um, the Guardian. Like she, she, she writes all over the place. And if you, um, if you went on YouTube, uh, you would find hundreds of talks that she's given. Um, in fact, I think she gave a TED Talk for Everyone Should Be a Feminist. And um, I think it's, you know, a TED Talk that's up there in the 10 million view range. Wow. But, um, but no, anything, anything you find by her is going to be well worth it. Okay. So going on to the next thing, and um, this is a Canadian author who everyone's heard of, and she's been really heavily in the news a lot for the last five or six years because of a TV series made after her book. But right now, with everything going on in the U.S. and the Supreme Court and, you know, women's access to health care and women's rights, um, it was obviously a book that had to be discussed. And um, I'm sure a lot of your listeners know it, but if you don't know it or you haven't read it, um, it's absolute, it's a must read for, I think, any adult of voting age. <laughs> I think they really need to dig into it. And that is Margaret Atwood's Handmaid's Tale. And it is, it's, it's very good. And again, if, if you like, I'll leave you, I brought a copy today. I'll leave you my copy if you want to read it. And okay. it's a dystopian novel about uh, a future America that is split up into parts. And there is a, a, a part of America that now calls itself Gilead. And it has fallen back on repressive, highly right-wing, highly religious views, sort of like the Puritans had, you know, 250 years ago. And what a handmaid is, is a handmaid is a woman um, who has lost her rights to, you know, how she handles her own reproduction. And they are basically um, chatteled off to wealthy, important families. They're basically ch ch chatteled off to wealthy and powerful families to act as uh, breeders. And so they're, they're, they're assaulted by the man of the house at, at, at the whim of the lady of the house, and they're expected to bear children for these people. And it's at a time in the future when child production, child reproduction, you know, women can't get pregnant. There's a huge issue with fertility in the future. But what's interesting is that there are all these political and social horrors that surround this uh, societal behavior. You know, all these things, you know, to enforce that kind of thing. I mean, violence has to be used, right? And there's, you know, there's executions, there's torture, there's imprisonment, there's, there's all these terrible things. But what's really interesting is that when Margaret Atwood was researching this book, she insisted on only using practices that actually existed in the world. Mm. So in the book and in the film series, you know, you see people who have gone against the state or people who have tried to escape and they're hung, but right. they're hung from cranes. Wow. And when you see that, you think, wow, that's really dramatic. But any of our friends who have been to or come from Iran know that that is a very common practice in Iran. And public, ex public executions using cranes is commonplace. To this day. To this day, today. It oh would have happened goodness. this week. And there are other things, you know, uh, homosexuals, you know, people of the LGBT um, being thrown off roofs by mobs. These are things that happen in Iran. These are things that happen in Saudi Arabia. These are things that happen in Indonesia. Wow. And like all, all, of the, all of the horrors that she selected to write about were all carefully researched. And they were all things that occurred at different times, in different places, and sometimes in our own societies. You know, like the, 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 the witch trials, the Salem witch trials were held four hours from where we're sitting. Really? We could jump in our car and be in Salem, Massachusetts for dinner. Wow. And those happened there. And it's interesting to me seeing what the Supreme Court in the U.S. is doing right now and seeing the direction, not only what's happening, but the wild support that these moves have. The millions of Americans who are like, no, this is good, we want this. And the balance of society sits back and goes, what are you talking about? Like, how could you support this? This isn't how our society works. And yet there they are voting for and, you know, raging for these things to happen. And it's, it's shocking. And I think, I think reading, um, at was definitely book, a different time in the, Oh, it's it's, it's, it's something. Look, the last, ever since I think even Trump got elected, I think there's been a, it, it has engaged with a section of society that maybe we were ignoring or pretending didn't exist. And, it's something that I think we as a society, you know, all of us in all countries have to face. And the problem is when a place like the U.S. begins to descend like that, and I've written, I've written essays and other things, you know, about the situation directly and indirectly about the situation in the U.S. right now. And um, ever since Trump got elected, I've been using the term um, post-developed country. And the reason I've been using that term is, you know, the U.S. has been considered the standard bearer of a first world developed country for as long as I've been alive. 
you know, ever since correct. ever since the, the, the after the Second World War. You know, their development, their social development, all the things that they did. I mean, th- there were so many positives. There's lots of negatives too, but there were so many positives and so many wins that came out of that time. Scientific development, educational development, you know, all these things. Right. But when you look at the decisions being made today and you look at the things happening. It's unbelievable. It's pretty shocking. It's and, very and, shocking. And they're, they're not little steps back. They're major foundational steps back. And to put this into perspective, the, the overturning Roe versus Wade is one thing, but when you start to explore how that law change will be enforced and you start to explore what the police and states will need to do to enforce that, um, taking, taking information off apps, off women's phones, because women use apps to monitor their menstrual cycles. Wow. Um, there was a woman in Mississippi who was prosecuted for having a miscarriage. There was a woman in Tennessee who was prosecuted for having a miscarriage. This is stuff that happens in Honduras, right? And something that I haven't, I've mentioned this on, on social, but something I haven't seen people talking about because of the way that law enforcement will need to pursue women, like, will there be roadblocks? Will women have their IDs checked? At Where borders? does it stop is what you're saying. Where does it stop? Yeah. But people don't seem to realize, based on the Canadian system of refugees and the criteria that we require for people to come in as refugees and people who are being persecuted in their countries for their religion, for their sexual orientation, for their race, for their gender right? This would put millions of women in the U.S. as eligible for protective asylum in our country. Think about that. Like, that's, that's how extreme these changes are. Wow. We could be in a position where we could legally accept um, and shelter women from prosecution in the U.S. because they're being pursued by law enforcement hmm. because they got pregnant because this or that happened. And it's, that's terrifying, that is something I never thought I'd see. You know, this Me is something either, not in my lifetime. This is something you read sure. about in Afghanistan. This is something you read about, you know, in in Kazakhstan, not not in places like this. And it's it's shocking, but we're sort of reminded that it actually has probably this attitude has probably always been there and it, and ex- had ex- has existed below the wire, but suddenly people who think this way, they have a voice. Right. And they have voting power and they right. said, "Look, I there's lots of that, us. Yes. Let's let's vote this way and see what we can do." Right. And it's terrifying, Ron. <laughs> it's yeah. ter- and you know my you know I, I I talk really, I have really tough language around the U.S. Um, my respect and admiration for what the U.S. has done is massive, and you know if there's going to be one big kid on the block so far as geopolitical control or power, you don't want it to be China, you don't want it to be Russia, you want it to be the U.S. Like to be quite <laughs> frank, right? If there's going to be one big hammer, right. it's much better to have them with that hammer than a lot of other places. They're not perfect. They've done, you know, if you go to Chile or Argentina, there's a long history there of, you know, them messing about politically. You know, Iran, they propped up the Shah in Iran for decades, you know, to the suffering of the Iranian people, and eventually they had enough. Unfortunately, that turned around into the Islamic Revolution, which has been a disaster for Iran and the world. But... You know, they were pushed into that corner by terrible foreign policy and very manipulative foreign policy. So it's it's tough. But but anyway, that's I, I, we went on a bender there. But yeah, that's OK. Um, that's what that's why I had you here. <laughs> yeah. Let's you go. Talk. But, but Mar- <laughs> Margaret Atwood is um, one of the most important writers, I think, in our country's history. And she's produced absolutely brilliant work. But if you don't know her and you haven't read her, um, The Handmaid's Tale is a wonderful place to start. And it's. As tough as the subject matter is, there are moments when it's brilliantly funny. Um, it just gets under your skin. The characters are the characters stay with you. When it's over, you want more. You know, you want to keep traveling with these people and living through what they're living with. And it's and if living, you living through them basically living through them. And if you ever get okay. a chance to hear Margaret Atwood speak, like even online, um, check her out because she's she's a remarkable interview, and just she's incredibly intelligent and urbane. Okay, so she does good. sound interesting. She's good. So the next author, and we're still in fiction here, okay. uh, is, is a hero of mine. And he's been, he's been gone for a while. But he's an Argentine author named Jorge Luis Borges. And um, he, he wrote a whole bunch of really important fiction. But his, his sort of forte is he really sort of was one of the precursors to magic realism and fabulism. And, you know, he writes about sort of wild and crazy things that happen in a real way in the real world with real people. 
and he has a, a short collection called Book of Sand. And he always held that he thought that was his most important work. A lot of critics didn't agree. But, you know, critics, sometimes their flavors can change with the winds, right? With the wind, for sure. But but he, he's written a lot of wonderful books. He, he wrote a collection called Ficciones, which, you know, you study if you do um, literature in university. But I think, um, I think Book of Sand would be a great place for people to start. It's very short. This is it right here, actually, Rob. It's a really short book. Yep. But, but he's, a, he's an interesting guy. Um, he was born in Buenos Aires, and he moved to Geneva um, later in life with his parents, and he, he bounced between the two places. And um, he, he lectured at a number of universities, and he was sort of one of the most important writers of the 20th century. And I've been to his, um, I've been to his grave in Geneva. I used to go to Geneva quite a bit because I have some people there. Mm-hmm. And uh, he has this beautiful little little tombstone. Geneva. Tell us a little bit about that. I don't want to get off. No, not at all. Here, but, um, but. Gen- Geneva, Switzerland. Um, one of my best friends uh, is an economist in Geneva. And okay. as a, a little guy, we lived in Switzerland a bit as well. And I have good friends in Geneva. And it's, it's an interesting place. It's, it's sort of very central to Europe. You can get anywhere from there. But, you know, Geneva is home of the UN, home of the Red Cross, home okay. of the WTO. So he knows a little bit about everything. He knows a little bit about I got everything. a funny story about Geneva. I was tell almost me. on a plane, I'll tell you quickly, uh, to Geneva accidentally. So it almost, <laughs> yeah, but it didn't work out that way. How, now, how, how does that happen? Were you, were you well, flying, Air, out, of, Air Canada. flying out of Iraq and suddenly uh, they were No, like, I was okay. flying at Air Canada and they, then they, uh, they failed to tell me, oh, we'll be stopping in Moncton. Don't worry, Mr. Reed, you'll be getting off here soon. <laughs> Jeez. So it was a flight to Geneva, yes. but it was this overlap in Moncton. Right. That's exactly. too funny. <laughs> yep. Well, no, if you ever get a chance to go, um, Geneva is spectacularly beautiful, but I've been, I, I've been very fortunate uh, through work and through connections to, you know, I've spent some time uh, in the UN while things were happening. And um, I was actually uh, uh, visiting a friend and uh, spending some time in the UN doing some research when um uh, all these different diplomats were in talks with the uh, with the Kurdish people, sort of at the tail end of the Iraq War, and there were all these you know world leaders hopping around from place to place, and everyone taking meetings. And there's there's me sitting in a corner with my cup of coffee, quietly <laughs> working on my laptop, you know, and I've got like the 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 you know regional leader of the Kurds, you know, wandering through with his See, entourage this is, and security. This is amazing. This guy's something. It's it, it was incredible. And then I've been lucky enough to you know I've spent a little bit of time in the in the I've had I've had coffee with a bunch of folks in the WTO and uh, the Red Cross <laughs> and it's it's these are these are Rob these are interesting rooms to be in yeah you know this is the closest I'm going to get to Hemingway so <laughs> I'm, I'm going to embrace, embrace it. <laughs> excuse me uh, but, no um, problem but yeah it's um it's no th- these are these are the rooms where decisions get made and it's it's really interesting to be to be a fly on the wall and to be sort of you know, uh, arm's length from a lot of these different characters and uh, seeing what goes on and hearing what goes on and just being, it's, it's an incredible energy. It's, it's really something to be around when that stuff is happening. I can imagine. I can imagine for sure. But, but yeah, um, Jorge Luis Borges. And, you know, if you Google him, um, you'll see, you'll come across a picture of like a very old blind guy with a cane, but uh, he was an, he was an interesting character. And it, it's funny, actually, um, a couple of weeks ago, I'd just come back from Argentina for and I had, I had a couple of days in Buenos Aires on my way out. And Buenos Aires is a city I used to live in. And I spent quite a bit of time in Argentina. And I, w- I, went, to my, I went to my favorite coffee shop. I went to Tortoni's Coffee Shop. Mm. And it's close to uh, uh, Puerto Madero. And, uh, did you work down there? Did, uh, I did, yeah. Mining stuff? Yeah, I was. I was uh, helping a gold mine out in Patagonia. They had some issues with a thing, and I was, I was down there to help them out. But in 2012, I actually lived in Patagonia um, at another gold mine um, for about a year. Okay. And I was down there, and uh, Patagonia is one of the most beautiful places in the world. It can't be beat. It's, really, um, it's just it's it's as wild as wild gets for me. Hmm. And you know the wind's blowing, and you know you sort of notice. Well, the wind's always blowing from the south. How come the wind's blowing from the south? Because that is air coming from the Great Southern Ocean around Antarctica. So that really? wind is coming straight to, from Antarctica to you. Really? <laughs> and okay. You know, it's, <laughs> this is the freshest. Every day. It's the freshest air on Earth. Really? Yeah, it is. But it's it's a trip too. Like it took me uh, to go from the mine I was at to get home to Fredericton, New Brunswick, was fifty three hours. That's that's so something. At eight in the morning, I get in a truck on a mine site, and we drive five hours to a town called um, Comodoro Rivadavia, and that's where the airport is. And then I wait a few hours in Comodoro. And then I jump on a plane, I go to Buenos Aires, but you get in there too late. There's two airports in Buenos Aires. There's a regional airport for the country, and that's on one end of town. And then there's the big international, which is across town. And Buenos Aires is 15 million people. It's a big town. 
and it's a it might be my favorite city in the world it's it's a pretty special place it's incredibly cultured it's like a giant rome right in the middle of south america hmm. it's 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 a big town and there's a lot going on and it's chock-a-block with coffee shops and bookstores and you know it's 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 an incredible place but uh, there, this coffee shop tortoni's cafe tortoni um you're in there and you're sitting at a table and you look up at the wall and there's a photo an old black and white photo and in that photo is Ernest Hemingway sitting at a table right next to Jorge Luis Borges. Really? The writer I'm talking about. And there oh. they are sitting at that table. And you look at this picture and you think, man, that's amazing. Yeah. They, they were in this cafe. They got a picture. That's been a, and then it takes you a minute and you look around and you realize that you're sitting at the table that they're sitting at in the photo. See, that's something. And that's that, special. that changes your life, man. That's life changing <laughs> stuff. Yeah. The, these, these, these guys were sitting right there, you know, and it's, it's, uh, it's tremendous. Hmm. But no, if, um, you know, I know some people have the opportunity to travel. Not, not everybody does. But um, Buenos Aires is a town that is a little tough to get to. It's a long way, but it's, uh, it's an incredible city. And if you like cities... Um, I'll tell you, I don't think it can be beat. Uh, I'll take Buenos Aires over New York 10 days a week. Really? Yeah. It's, it's, it's incredibly interesting and engaging. It's exciting. Uh, widest Avenue in the world, 18 lanes, 18 really? lanes. It has three sets of crosswalks to get across it. Really? <laughs> yes. I'll show you pictures. It's, okay. it's something else. And it's, it has a really weird, complicated history and uh, that's what we, we can talk about another time. But there's all this stuff like with uh, what the British call the Falkland Islands and the Argentines call the Malvinas. You know, they, they fought a war in the early 80s when the Argentines invaded it. And, you know, there's, there, there were years of um, U.S. manipulation of the government in Argentina. They ended up with uh, generals running the country under a junta, it's called. So the military ran the country. And, you know, it was a bloody, bloody time. Um, they, the Argentines disappeared 18,000 of their own people young hmm. students who were protesting and trying okay. to reestablish the government, right. they were literally picking them up off the street at night in, you know, in vans. Like it was, it was, it was an ugly time. And it's something that the country and the population still hasn't come to terms with. They still haven't sort of faced it and tried to sort of, you know, come, come to a realization of their own history. It's still something that's tough. And Chile is not so different. Chile has had a not entirely dissimilar history. Um, with sort of, you know, the great fear of communism in the 70s and the 80s led to some terrible actions. And the, the Chileans also, um, you know, disappeared thousands of their own people. And it's, it's tough. And when you go there and work there, it's really funny because you meet people who were like, it was a terrible time in our history and I don't know how that happened. And then you meet other people who are sort of, um, oh no, it had to happen. The communists would have taken over. We had to kill all those students. Like, it's quite something to hear the to hear you know from from intelligence makes people. you realize how lucky we really are. Oh, it absolutely it does. does. It absolutely does. And at, but at, see, at the same time, we can say that you know we we live very comfortable and safe lives here, but that's honestly because we come from a certain segment of the population, right? If if you and I were born and raised on on in an indigenous community on a reservation somewhere in this country, our history would be very different, right? And I I'm really encouraged by all the the recognition and realization of these past horrors and but i'm also hyper aware that it's just the tip of the iceberg and you know we're still finding graves in schools every day every day you know thousands and if this was if this was in sri lanka or bosnia you know there would be an international investigation there would be you know the the world court would be here but because it's us in our backyard it's like no 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 we'll we'll handle this we got some university students and you know the rcmp are looking at it like it's 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 sort of ter like even our response to it is not, is not enough, right? We're, it's not it's not weighing on us. I think the way it should, and I, I think every country. I don't think Canada is unique. I think every single country has its wins and has its loses. Yes, skeletons. Losses. Every country has its absolutely. Skeletons for we sure. all we all have things to be proud of, and we all have things to be ashamed, ashamed of. of. And it's funny because when people tell me you can't, you know, you can't criticize Canada. It's your country. You can only be proud of it. Well, the word for that's a cult, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, like it's, it's because I'm an adult and I respect and love where I live that we have to, you know, call ourselves out on that stuff. That's true. You know, and it's, it's, it's really important. And you can't grow as a country. You can't grow as a society until you start facing some of those things. And they're painful, but we're all better for facing it. And wiping it, wiping it under the rug, look at the countries that do that. Russia, you know, um, all these places that don't address their history and it, it becomes a festering wound and eventually it infects the whole body. Right. And it's, it's tough. It's not good. 
But anyway, I've gone on. That, 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 I meant to be really quick with Borges. That's okay, <laughs> man. We have plenty of time. But um, the, the next book I want to talk about, and interestingly, um, talking about history and race and all the things that are involved is, um, again, I think one of the most important authors of the 20th century, and her name is Toni Morrison. And she won the Nobel Prize. And she uh, wrote a book called um, Beloved, which I think Oprah Winfrey made into a film. And it was very, very well received. But it's a, that book is a tough read. But the book I've selected, she's written a bunch of books. And you know her work is just sort of masterpiece after masterpiece. But the book I selected today was The Bluest Eye. And The Bluest Eye should be required reading, um, I think, for all high school students. Um, in Canada, in the U.S. And that's never going to happen. <laughs> never. It's never going to happen. But it's about, it's about a young girl uh, growing up in the U.S. South who is, uh, she, she's a, a girl of color. She's black and she's ashamed of who she is. Mm. And she looks at beauty as being something that white people with blue eyes have and that pe- people of color, people of other ethnicities don't have. And it's, it's really been something that society has built inside her. You know, and her own her own shame at who she is is really kind of the spine of the story. And it is beautifully written and it is revelatory. And it's, it's, um, Toni Morrison's incredible because she writes in gorgeous, intricate language, but at the same time, it's simple. It's not sort of superfluous. It doesn't, it, it doesn't sort of create fireworks with language necessarily, but it is absolutely beautiful use of language. And so, you can read the same paragraph twice and kind of have a bit of a different experience with it each time. But um, anything by Toni Morrison, um, you would be hard-pressed uh, to find sort of a more, I'll call, I'll call her important writer. Um, and she, she passed away not that long ago, but she is somebody who is, if you have any interest in history or literature at all, she is somebody who you should definitely spend some time with. And like I said, I chose The Bluest Eye because I think it's one of the, the clearest, beautiful examples of her work. But, you know, she wrote jazz. She wrote, like I said, Beloved. She's written just a ton of really good work. And, you, again, very easy to find in any bookstore. You'll find a shelf of her. So okay. It's good. That's so, on the list for sure. So the, ne- the next book I chose is a Canadian author. And uh, full, full disclosure, uh, he's a very good friend of mine. Okay. And he's somebody that I've worked with as an editor and a friend. And he was also, um, he was also my instructor at Humber College when I did a course there. And uh, his name is Colin McAdam. And uh, he has a new book coming out um, called Black Dove. And that book's dropping in September, I think. It's from Penguin. But that's going to be a tremendous piece of work. Just let me, let me tell you now, if you're looking for new things to read this fall, um, you just have to chase that down. That's my favorite time of year to read fall. Oh, no, that's, I like that. That's when the books land because what happens yeah, is makes sense. the companies want to release their big hardcovers so that people can give them as Christmas gifts. Makes a lot of and, sense. But it, it's therefore just become like the time in literature. Like it's the time when the big books get released and it's, right. it's, it's fabulous. Huh. But the, the book I'm referring to was sort of a, a big book for him from a few years ago and it's called A Beautiful Truth. And it's, when I was first told what the book was about, I was like, ah, I don't really know if that's my thing. But two pages in, I was, I was gobsmacked. And um, A Beautiful Truth is about a young couple that don't have children. And they decide to sort of... Uh, as an idea that they're going to adopt a chimpanzee Hmm. and they adopt a chimpanzee and it becomes part of their life and part of their family and how that decision impacts their lives, the life of the chimpanzee, how they understand sort of what this being has brought into their home, how this being feels about things. It makes you look at the world very differently. Hmm. And I know that Colin spent the better part of a year in the U S at a research center um, working with chimps and their trainers and their, their, the, the researchers working with them. And it is, um, it is a moving book and it makes you, it makes you look at the world through different eyes. It really does. And there's a, there's an empathy to it that I didn't realize, I didn't realize how impactful it would be. And it's, it's, it's a very interesting book because it doesn't, it didn't strike me as something I really wanted to read. And then I just tore it up. I just, I ripped through it and then I read it again. And it's, uh, it, it, I think all great work, this could be the, 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 the state of all great work, it changes you a little bit. You're a little bit of a different person after, you know, just the way you view things. Right, yeah. And this is that book. And his, his execution, Colin's a very, very good writer. And his execution, his use of language, his use of structure is, um, like, you could, they could teach courses about him. It's, it's, 
so strong. And it's one of these things where he's almost a little bit undercover. You don't realize how good the writing is because it just carries you along. But when you go back and look at things with a more technical eye, you realize what's being done and it's, it's impressive. Hmm. So, so the book is a beautiful truth and the author is Colin McAdam and he, he has a number of books out and they're all, they're all well worth your time. Okay. So my last work of fiction is a local Fredericton author. Really? Okay. And his name is Mark Anthony Jarman. And Mark is a, Mark is a legend around these parts. And he's been a, he's been a, a well-known author. He's been a well-known author all over the place. And uh, he's actually been an instructor at the uh, Iowa Writers Workshop. Uh, yeah, he's been an instructor at the Iowa Writers Workshop. And he's, uh, for the last many years, he's been a uh, professor at UNB here in Fredericton. And I've actually, um, oh, thanks so much, Rob. I've actually uh, sat in on a couple of his grad classes. And Mark, Mark is an exceptionally talented writer and wordsmith and he's written beautiful works of fiction and he has written some amazing uh travel and nonfiction pieces and uh he's his his short stories and his short work can be found in magazines all over the place in the u.s europe here in canada he's written all over the place and he worked at the fiddlehead um he was one of the senior people at the uh, fiddlehead which is the literary journal that unb produces and that's actually it's a world-class journal if you're not aware of the Fiddlehead, it's um, it's one of the most important journals I think in the country, and it's it's you know really well respected worldwide. But the book that I wanted to talk about from Mark is a short story collection about music, and it's called it's called Czech Techno, and um, it's 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 a remarkable work, and I actually reviewed it uh, for a literary magazine in Ontario. And so that's a Mark Anthony Jarman. If you find anything from him, it's well worth reading. He, he sort of became famous for, um, I think it was a knife fight at the Europa Hotel. So, so I'm going to go through here really quickly uh, with my nonfiction list. And I'm just going to, I'm going to blast through this. Thanks. Okay. <laughs> I, I took a little longer than I thought. No, I that's okay. To, that's to what I want everyone to feel your presence. If you get good feedback, I'm happy to come back. Yeah, hear your knowledge. <laughs> sure. Absolutely. But, um, for nonfiction, um, going through really quickly, every, everybody needs to have some good cookbooks on their shelf. And a cookbook doesn't just have to be about recipes. It can be about the story and culture and, you know, sort of life surrounding food. And the book that I choose is Anthony Bourdain. And it's the uh, Lahal cookbook from his time in, in um, Paris and New York working at the Lahal French, re French restaurant. And that wow. book is it's this, this ex it's exceptional. Yeah. I have it right here. Okay. And it's, it's a brilliant book. It's actually a gift from a very good friend. And that everyone everyone needs to dig into their cookbooks. Um, I'm 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 gonna gonna blow through these really quickly. The next book is Black Paper, and it's by a Nigerian American author named Tiju Cole, and it's a series of essays. It's one of the best nonfiction works I've read in forever. It's a series of essays on art, travel, race, history, politics, everything. It's you you cannot go wrong with Tiju Cole. And if you Google him, um, he's done beautiful photography books. He he's a, I believe he's an assistant professor at Harvard. He, he's he's amazing. Um, an American author, Sebastian Younger, who you might know as the guy who wrote um, Perfect Storm, yes. who made a film. Yes. Uh, Sebastian has a whole bunch of very good nonfiction books. And his work, it's very masculine. It talks a lot about war and brotherhood and these sorts of things. But um, the book I chose was Freedom, and uh, it's his latest book. And Sebastian hitchhiked along train tracks <laughs> all over the eastern U.S. illegally, you know, living, living like a, what you would sort of considered an old school hobo really and his his observations about life and the world in the u.s and uh anything i could talk about sebastian younger in a whole talk all on its own but he's he's well worth your time um if you're a dad or a sort of an adult male in the world um i really think that um, robert persig's zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance is a book that everybody should read and i actually brought a copy for you Oh, and okay. It is. It's. It's. The, the subtitle is an exp an exploration of values. I think is what it's called, but it's about a guy spending time with his son through working on a motorcycle. Really, but it's really about philosophy. Okay, and it's it's a beautiful book, and I think that should be required reading. Um, going back to the old, the the way old, the way back. Um, Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius has a collection of writings called Meditations, and you can pick that up in any bookstore. You know, chapters will have a stack of these. 
Hmm. And it's a really short book. And it's his, uh, he was the last emperor of what they call Pax Romana, which was the time of peace in the Roman Empire. And I think it lasted from 87 to 167 AD. And he was a very, you know, like all Roman emperors, he had blood on his hands, but he was a very urbane, extremely intelligent. He was one of the early Stoics. And if you want to look that word up for your, um, if, if your listeners aren't familiar, if you look up Stoics, you know, Seneca, there, there's a whole history of uh, Stoicism and Stoics who had writings about, it, it's just a, it's a philosophy of how to move through the world and how to think and how to, how you interact with the people around you and the society around you. And it's That's important nowadays. It is. It I think really people is. are forgetting that. People Absolutely. know how to conduct themselves. Absolutely. And um, another another book, you know, people talk so much about economics and the economy, and it sort of blows my mind how unconnected so many people are to world economics and how things work, and what the actual systems underpinning everything we do are. And there's a book by a French economist called named Thomas Piketty, and the book is called Capital, and it's it's a big tomb. It's a great big hardcover, and some of it's quite dense, but if you can kind of climb into it and give it a read. Um, it's it's got a lot of really important information and you know ways of understanding how economics work, how they impact our daily lives, you know the variations between micro and macro, and really economics is more than just the stock market or the economy. Those are actually very tiny parts. Um, economics is everything. It's it's how everything in the world moves, how we get the things we get, how we get our food, how we pay for our homes, how those things influence others in other places. It's, it's all very interconnected and he, he, he covers it beautifully. He's a French. That's very true. It's, That's it's, very it's, true. it's a really good yep. book. And I, I do think that the average citizen has a very poor grasp of those things. And I think, you know, it's one of those things that I think really need to start being taught again. You know, we used to take economics when Get I was in high school. back to the school. basics. Yeah, Let's like start I'm, over. I'm an old guy like you. You know, I had to take <laughs> economics and statistics in That's high school. That's true. Yeah. And the other thing, and uh, this may, some people may dis- disagree with this, but if you want to kind of have a grasp on what's going on in the world, this is the last thing. I sus- I've subscribed to a magazine, a weekly magazine that comes out that's called The Economist. And it's very well known, and you can look them up online. Their articles are free. Um, but uh, what, what, what I tell people is I watch the news to see what happened today, and a week later I read The Economist to find out why. Why? And it is, uh, I think, one of the most important documents in print today. And it covers everything across economics, political, you know, it covers uh, science and technology, it covers art, and it, it, it's all anonymous writers. Maybe it's, I should uh, read that and to try to find out what happened to Rogers this past weekend oh, and why. No, but I'll tell you, next week, <laughs> next week there'll be an article in The Economist as to I, what I believe that. I want to know and the truth. And if you're interested, I have a subscription, so what happens is these things land on my front door every week, but I also have a digital subscription. I read it on my iPad mm-hmm. when I fly. And I fly a lot. <laughs> and, I know you're all over the place. And um, <laughs> I, uh, I'd be happy to bring you over a bunch because it's um, it, it's like honestly, as an adult in the world, I think these are important things to know and understand and have a grasp of. Yeah, I was I talking agree. to somebody the other day, you know, about you know, as you know, tragically, um, Abe, the the former Japanese prime minister, was assassinated a couple of days ago, and that's you know that's madness. It is. And I was talking to somebody, and I said, you know, this is this is tough because this is really going to impact um, um, Taiwan. And, you know, what's going on there? And the person I was talking to was a really intelligent person. We're like, well, how is, a, how is an ex-PM of Japan getting assassinated going to impact Taiwan? And it's like, well, Abe's been a huge protector of Taiwan po- po- politically and economically for a very long time. You know, he fought for them at the UN. He'd, like, he's done all these things. And it, it, it worried me a little bit that, like, the person I was speaking to didn't really have a grasp of those things. Because this is somebody who thinks about these things, right? This is somebody who, you know, right. I talked to. And... I, I do think that reading The Economist and things like it, uh, e- even if you don't agree with what's being written, it, it gives you a grasp. It helps you have a bit of a handle on what's going on in the world around you. Yep. And we're at a time... Different view, a different it, angle. It is. And okay. we're at a time now where how we vote really, really matters. What we support or don't support really matters. And people think our votes don't matter. Well, half the U.S. just lost their right to health care because of the way a few, a couple of judges voted. You're right. And that happened because the wrong guy was in office for four years and, you know, stacked a court. And, like, these things really matter. These things affect you and I. We don't even live in that country right now. You know, you're American, I'm Canadian. But both my siblings... I'm also li- Canadian, too. also Canadian, now. too. Yes. And, but, like, both my siblings live in the U.S., right? Right. I have a sister in Seattle and a brother in the Virgin Islands. And, like, this affects everybody. 
And what else it does is decisions like that affect other people in other countries because those countries, those governments watch that. It's definitely say, a domino effect. We can get away with this. Yeah, we can true. do this now. Yep. And we were outcasts and now the U.S. is doing it. So we're, we're back in. And it, it, these things can be really damaging dangerous. to hundreds of millions of people. It Very is true. It's really dangerous. But Rob, thank you so much for the time today, man. This was, I love talking to you about this books. This is amazing. Man. <laughs> One thing, tell us a little bit about your book collection. That's what my, everyone my wants to know. Collection. How many books do you have? I mean, you have a grasp on that and how well, much? I have, there? I'll tell you what, I have, um, I have books in different places. Um, I have, I want to say I have probably about 2,800 books here at my apartment. Oh Fredericton. Uh-huh. I have about a thousand books uh, at my dad's house in Vancouver, BC. And I have also probably a few hundred books at my family's place in uh, Belfast, Northern Ireland. Really? And so they're all spread out, but that, that, that number is growing because like, I'll probably buy a book or two today, Rob. <laughs> Just, <laughs> and, and what happens is okay. like, I have a lot of friends who are writers and, you know, have written some wonderful work. And whenever a friend drops a book, I pick it up. That's good. And man. so it is Support. good, but it also, you know, those shelves, man, they get stacked fast. Right. My, right. my, my house is clean, but it's a mess. It's a mess. <laughs> and, uh, but you see, that's nothing. Cause the late author, Umberto Eco, the Italian professor of semiotics and wonderful author, Umberto Eco. Uh, he wrote the name of the rose and the island of the day before, and he was he was my favorite author. Uh, he he's he famously between his uh, apartment in Bologna and his house in Rome, he famously has fifty thousand books. Wow! And they were stacked like in hallways. Wow! <laughs> so that's, something. that's sort of he's sort of my standard bearer, Rob. Yeah. Oh my goodness! <laughs> but I think before it's over, you're going to have many many books. I, I hope do. so, man. I, I, I hope so. That's that's the plan, and I that's just want to. I hope, share your knowledge I, with all of us, the I, world. We love it. We well, love people. Like I really this. appreciate yes. that. And I, ho- I hope we get to do some more of these because oh, this has been, sure. this has been wonderful. And you are, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm so proud and impressed of all the things you've done. Oh, thanks have, man. I'm having a good time. You, you are crushing it. And you are, <laughs> you are the model of a boss. I, I tell you, like you are who I think of when I think of getting it done. All right, you man. Are, I appreciate you're that. making it happen. So I'm, I'm lucky to call you a friend. I yeah, really am. Likewise. Likewise. Okay. Okay. Jeremy. Well, thank you for coming guys. I know you all enjoyed this as well as I did. An amazing guy, as I like to call him, Fredericton's most interesting man <laughs> and soon to be Canada's most interesting man. He's going to be on that level pretty soon. And I appreciate you again. Thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, over 17,000 listeners will hear this real soon in the next couple of days. So uh, look out for it and we'll talk to you soon. And once again, thank you, Jeremy. Thank you so much, Rob. We'll see you soon. Okay. Bye-bye.